You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we pause to thank you for your goodness in waking us up this morning. We thank you for life and health and strength. We thank you that we can gather together, those of us here in person, those who are listening online. We pray, Lord, that as we do so, that you would speak personally to us. We pray, Lord, that our hearts may be soft and tender. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak to us. Lord, mold us, shape us, and fashion us to be who you would have us to be. Speak through me, Lord, this morning, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. As a young minister, I would sometimes look at some responsibilities, aspire to do them. I would sometimes look at people that would have certain jobs or functions or roles within the conference setting and think, I think I would like to do that. Now that I'm a little bit older, I kind of look back on some of those aspirations and desires and, and, and see them somewhat as the immaturity of youth. I used to want to have the opportunity to sit on a conference constituency nominating committee. And I know as a, a pastor, or maybe I'm sure members may sometimes think the same thing, you're thinking this constituency is coming round. I wouldn't mind that opportunity to be on that committee that kind of does have a steering ability to choose some of the next leaders. Because it's often very rare that the flaw in constituency reverses what the committee brings out. It does happen sometimes, but not that often. So if you can get on that committee, then I did last year have the opportunity to sit on the union nominating committee. I guess you'd say it's a privilege to get the opportunity to choose leaders in our world church at, certain, at a certain level. Amen. Don't want to discount that. It wasn't a bad experience. It was a very smooth. There was, we didn't have a, what would I say? It wasn't like political fighting back and forth and, 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 and caucuses and people all. It wasn't any of that. It was fine. I didn't have a bad experience. So I'm not like, oh, it was terrible. I didn't have a bad experience. It was, it was in, in many ways, the, they were, uh, the people on the committee said at the end that it was just one of the smoothest committees they'd been on. In that sense, it was fine. But after going through the experience, I, I, I no longer look at that and think, I really want to do it. I've done it. Not like being there, done that, but with the mystery removed, I'm like, oh, okay. Just another committee. But as I was sitting on the committee, the chair of the committee, who was the division president, because division chairs a union, he, he, he's chairing the committee, and he said one thing. He said, okay, we're going to pick our leaders for the union, the British Union Conference. We're choosing our leaders, and as we're choosing leaders, the president, secretary, treasurer, and the departmental leaders, and so on, he said, he, he gave a whole spiel, and he said, particularly he said this as we were talking about who would be the president, and we were putting names on board as the potential president, and as we're putting the names on the board, he said, we're looking, he said, for a leader who's reluctant. He said, if there's anyone on this board who personally has told me that they want to be the union president, in my mind, they're crossed off already. 
And he said, as I'm looking at the board of five names, I can see one name there who has come to me prior to session and told me that he wants to be the president. I'm not going to reveal who it is, but if his name comes top of the list, I will tell you. Guessing his name didn't come top of the list because he never had to reveal a name who that was. But he said, those that want it, we don't want. We're looking for the one who is a little bit more reluctant. Different cultures around the world are, are different, amen? Americans are different to English. Agreed? Separated by a common language is what they say. Cousins, they say. We sometimes refer to you as that, you know, that rebellious child that ran away. But you still love the royal family, don't you? Oh yes, you still love the Queen and you still love William and Kate. You're not too keen on Charles like we aren't either. Uh, but, but you love them still. Sometimes I wonder why you went through all that effort to get rid of the royals when you just put them on your TVs all the time. I'm just joking. I know you had a war of independence. Amen. Americans are different to English in, in some ways. One of the ways that Americans are different to English, I was talking to an English, an American lady once, and she said that, no, an English lady living in America, and she said that when I'm interviewing Americans for a job, I always assume they can do less than they say they can. Now, Americans aren't the best at self-reflection when it comes from someone outside of America, so please, bear with me. And then she said, when I'm interviewing an English person, I always assume they can do more than they say they can. Let me explain it a little bit. Americans generally, and these are huge generalizations, so they don't hit everybody, are generally taught to be confident, bold, and assertive. True? I remember once I was in a car of people who was driving to a ski resort. I can snowboard. I've been snowboarding for 15 years. I consider myself half decent. Whatever grade of run I do, I can get down in some form or fashion. And I'm in the car with these, these guys. And I texted my wife. I was like, you wouldn't believe it. I'm driving in a car full of snowboard professionals. You wouldn't believe it. The things that these guys can do on their snowboards is absolutely unreal based on their conversation in the car. <laughs> oh man, I can do 180s. Oh yeah, man, I just like to hit that side there and do this flip. I started to feel like insufficient to be traveling in the car with such esteemed snowboarders until I got to the slopes and realized that a lot of the things they thought they could do was imagination in their head of how they thought they looked, but not really in reality. English people tend to, and it's not necessarily a virtue because it has the same root, really, in some ways. They tend to, like, underplay stuff. Can you play football? Yeah, I can kick a ball. And the less English and Americans know this, when, when they're talking, it kind of, like, it meets like this. And the Americans like, I can do this. And an English like, yeah, I can kick a ball. But when we know an English person says they can kick a ball, we actually really know that what they're saying is they're really good. 
but they don't want to say that, so they just say they can kick a ball, and you can just kind of tell by the innuendos or the, or the way that they phrase it or the facial expression, you can kind of pick up what they're saying. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Exodus. We're looking at aspects of character, principles of leadership that we can find through biblical characters and we find in our sacred history. And as we look at this subject of reluctant boldness, reluctant boldness, we find there one of my favorite characters, one of my favorite characters in the Bible is Moses. When I had my son was born, his name is Enoch, and I wanted him to be called Moses. And I, I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and I tried to persuade my wife to let him be called Moses. And she said, no, 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 no. The reason why is because I have a nephew called Moses. So my sister has named her son Moses, and she's like, we can't have two Moseses in the same family. That's going to be confusing. And I was like, it's okay, it's okay, we can have two Moseses. And I tried, but I kind of knew I was fighting the uphill battle, but I tried until the last day, but I kind of knew it wasn't going to work, but I still tried, amen. And then she's like, we picked Enoch, so then I managed to kind of negotiate and get Moses as one of his middle names. So his actual name is Enoch. And he has a Japanese next name, Takujiro, and then Moses, and then Ramdin. And she's like, but he doesn't need two middle names. And I says, well, he does. He won't thank us for it later, but he's going to have them. So Moses is one of my favorite Bible characters. Moses, we know the story of Moses. He's born there in Egypt. At the time he's born, they say, throw the little boys into the river. Kill them. Moses' mother figures out a plan, and she takes her son, and for the first three months, the book of Acts says, for the first three months, they managed to hide the boy. But it gets difficult to hide them in the home, so they, 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 they make a, a basket, and they put pitch on the basket, and they take that basket down to the riverside, and they put it there in the bulrushes. The River Nile's not a pretty river, it's a wide river. It's not like a, a, this picturesque flowing like mountain stream that comes with glacial melt water. It's not a pretty river, per se. It's just wide, it's brown. And there's Moses in this basket in the bulrushes on the side and Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the water and as she comes down, she sees the basket and she can put two and two together and she realizes what's taking place here. A mother is simply trying to save their child. It may be that as a child of the leader, she's not in agreement with her father's policies or her father's way of governing the, the, the country or the empire, but she can't really go against him openly. But here she can do a little bit within her sphere to change someone's life. And as she sees the baby, she says, take the child. Miriam comes out the water and says, do you need a nurse for the child? Do you need someone to look after him? Because surely you in your importance don't have the time. And she says, yes, I do. And she goes and runs and gets the mother. And one thing leads to another. And Moses is brought up by his own mother for the first 12 years of his life, paid for by the government. God has his hand over Moses. God is preparing Moses for something special. He puts him here in the courts of Pharaoh so that Moses can have access to education. He can have access to learning. He can have access to, 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 um, to all these great minds in a way that he wouldn't have if he stayed there as a slave with the Hebrews. We don't have much about Moses' life here. The book of Exodus doesn't really record anything. In Exodus chapter, where are we? Exodus chapter 3, no, 2. And it talks about Moses being conceived. I'm uh, sorry. And it talks about verse 7, sister running to Pharaoh. And the Bible just says, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh, verse 10, and he became her son. 
And she called his name Moses because I have drawn him out of the water. And the gap between verse 10 and verse 11, we have nothing. You don't have anything. From the age of 12 to the age of 40, the Bible doesn't really record anything there as to the detail. But he goes through his teenage years in the courts of Pharaoh. He goes through his 20s. He goes through his 30s. And there he's learning. He's, he's, he's an accomplished man. He's at work. He's in charge of people. He's had education. He has military experience. Moses would have no doubt known or maybe thought or maybe someone's put the thought in his head, you're destined for greatness. You, son, you have privileges that no other Hebrew child has. You have access to resources that no other Hebrew child has. It surely had to cross his mind personally. It surely had to cross his mind by someone saying it to him as well, that Moses, you're destined for something bigger than any one of us. It had to cross his mind, either as a subconscious thought, a conscious thought, or more than likely someone else saying it to him. And it's not easy in life to grow up with other people telling you that you're going to be something great that you have not yet achieved yet. It's not easy to grow up and people are saying, you're going to go there. You're going to be that person. But yet you're still here. It does something to the human mind. It, it plays on our mind in a way that nothing else can play on it. When someone feels that they've earned a position that they don't have yet, the child of the parent who's privileged, growing up with privileges, and they, they know they're going to take over the family business. They just know it. And they act in a way that just kind of sometimes turns other people off by their deportment and, and the way they're acting. That person who comes to conference nominating committee, and they've had by now umpteen church members and churches tell them, we're gunning for you, we're behind you. Yeah, we're going to put your name forward, putting your name forward. And they walk into the church with a different air, with their shoulders a little bit different, with their face looking a little bit different because they're thinking, I'm going to get something, I'm going to get something. Moses, you're called. The Bible says there in verse 11, and it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren. Let me go see my people. Let me go and see my people. He dressed differently to them. No doubt had a different haircut to them. Possibly had a different even accent to them. I don't know. And he goes out amongst his brethren who are all slaves and he comes there in his chariot and, and they're looking at him and he thinks he's one of them but they're looking at him like you're not one of us. And as he goes out there, the Bible says, he went to look unto his brethren and looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian hitting a Hebrew. Let me go help my people. So he smites. He smites him. Turn to Acts chapter 7. Turn to Acts chapter 7. We have a similar account in Acts written by the, the writer of Acts. In Acts chapter 7 and verse, around verse 24 and 25. It says, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, verse 24, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and killed or smote the Egyptian. Verse 25, notice verse 25, Acts 7 verse 25. For he supposed his brethren would have understood 
how that God by his hands would deliver them. He's going down there like, I'm Moses. I am Moses. And he gets down there and he kills an Egyptian. And verse 25 says, for he thought, he thought, he thought that his brothers would understand. They would understand that this is Moses who's come to deliver you and you should bow down on your knees and thank this great leader who's come to help you out of your bondage. I've come to help them. I've come to help my people. Surely they should be thankful for the little bit of help that I'm doing because I'm Moses. I've got military training. I've got educational training. I'm here to help my people and surely they'll be thankful for my help. He supposed that they would understand what he's come to do. And as they look at him and they see him kill a man, they see him kill a man. They're like, hmm. He would have talents and skills and understanding in, in whatever. But something's lacking in Moses. Something's lacking in Moses. Some of you may be destined for greatness. Maybe someone's told you this or someone's told you that. Or maybe even the Lord has revealed something to you. But there's still a process of where you are to get where you need to go. There's still a need in a sense in us to have boldness. But there's a, a need for us to have reluctance before the boldness. And the reluctance is not based on a doubt in God. The reluctance needs to be based like Moses needs to have. A reluctance based on a doubt in our own self. A reluctance based on an analysis of your own abilities. A reluctance based on your own sinfulness. A reluctance based on your own shortcomings. A reluctance based on how can God use me? Moses doesn't have that in Acts chapter 7 verse 25. He doesn't have any sense of how can God use me. He has a sense of God needs me. God needs me. And God please say thank you and applaud from heaven that now I've stepped out of my palace and I've come to help your people. Back to, Eve, back to verse Exodus. Flip back to Exodus. Exodus 2 verse 12. The Bible says he looks this way and that. And when he saw there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and he hid him in the sand. It was not Moses' skills or abilities that qualified or disqualified him for service. In some ways, God did need Someone who had the military training that Moses had. He did need someone that understood how to lead large groups of people. He did need someone that had the training Moses had. But ultimately, when you look through his, uh, the Bible, God did not need that per se. Though it may be helpful. What God needed was a man whose character was willing to lead. Here he has a murderer. It was his character that disqualified him for service, not his education. Education was fine if it was used in the right way. But the skill that Moses had learned wasn't enough on its own for him to lead. Moses needed that humility. He needed that lack of pride, that lack of trust in himself in order to lead. We used that quotation earlier this week when I was talking about on, a, on another subject or person that of all the sins that are most incurable, pride and self-sufficiency are the most incurable. And Moses is standing here with pride. God needs me. It's easy to think the church needs us. Our local church needs us. Our conference needs us. God likes to use all of us, but he doesn't need us. Moses has to flee Egypt. The Bible says there, where is it? You read down. He goes out and tries to solve a problem with two he uh, Hebrews fighting each other. They say, you're only going to kill us like you killed the other one. 
Pharaoh hears about it, verse 15, and Moses has to flee to the land of Midian. And we know that he goes there at the age of 40, and he's there for, until the age of 80 for 40 years. All of us have to go in the service of God through some wilderness experience. It may be two weeks. It may be a year. And maybe the Lord calls you out of active service for two years. I don't know. You may go through an experience in life and God just brings you back from the heat of the fire. All of us may need at some time to go through a wilderness experience. And the length of the wilderness experience is often in proportion to either the issue God is dealing with us, how much we're responding to that issue, and how much help we need. The fact that Moses' wilderness experience lasted for 40 years and not 40 days, for 40 years and not four years, for 40 years and not 10 years, tells you how deep the problem was. God's like, I need 40 years in the wilderness to fix this one. Some of you may be farmers here. Some of you may have, uh, have animals, but sheep. He's out there in the desert, and if you've ever flown me, if you think Michigan's bad, and Michigan heat today may be bad, but it's not that bad. I've, been, I've spent summers in Louisiana. That's even worse. But imagine spending the summer and the winter in the Arabian desert. The heat there is brutal. 40 years. 40 years to fix your character. Moses had some deep-seated pride and self-sufficiency issues to have to be in the wilderness for 40 years. If you feel you're in a wilderness experience with God right now, listen to the lessons he's trying to teach. Moses takes 40 years there in the wilderness to fix his issues. He comes back. And now when he comes back, go to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 3, sorry, Exodus chapter 3, and we come to Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses, is, God is calling Moses, and in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 11, the Bible says, and Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? He now reaches the point where before he's like, in Acts chapter 7, he says, I thought my people would understand that I am the one to deliver them. Why don't they know this? Don't they know that it's me, Moses, come to deliver them? Acts chapter 7, verse 25. Now in he, Exodus 3, verse 11, he says, who, who am I? Who, who, who am I? Who am I to go to Pharaoh? Got someone else, God? Because I don't think I'm the man. Chapter 4, verse 1. And Moses answered and said, but behold, they won't believe me nor hearken unto my voice. They might say, the Lord hasn't appeared to me. Moses has now reached a point where he's distrustful of himself. And he has this reluctance that qualifies him for leadership. He hasn't quite fully got it right because he gets God angry in verse 10. He's like too reluctant. But God's still working with him, amen? Because in verse 10, he's like, <laughs> what's he saying in verse 10? And Moses said, oh Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither thereto nor since you have spoken unto your servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue in the Bible. God says, verse 11, who made your mouth? Who makes the deaf and the dumb or the seeing and the blind? Now go. God's like, listen, I appreciate the reluctance, but you've gone a bit too far there. I created you. I'm driving you forward. I will guide what you say. Now go. Now go. God's calling people today who will lead and go for him. God's looking for people who are hesitant and distrustful of themselves, but not a hesitancy that leads to delay. Not a hesitancy that leads to doubt in God's power, 
but a distrust of our own self. When I look in Adventist history, one of the places that we filmed with Lineage, and maybe many of you have been there because it's not too far from here, it's on the East Coast. It's the home of William Miller, birthplace of Adventism in America. It's not, uh, we don't, as a Seventh-day Adventist church, own this site solely. We, we, we own it with another, another group. Birthplace of Adventism, the Advent message. This is where William Miller's home is. If you ever get a chance to go there to Lowhampton, New York, and visit, you should. William Miller was a fascinating character. He was a farmer. He was a farmer. He fought in the War of 1812 against the English, the British, and that was one of the places where he kind of, not conversion, but that's one of the places where God spoke to him through the war. He said, we're 5,000 soldiers here. We're, we're, We're farmers. We're not trained soldiers. We're farmers tradesmen, whatever we are, and we're here fighting against 15,000 British soldiers fresh from defeating Napoleon. 15,000 trained soldiers, 5,000 laymen. They should obliterate us, but the 5,000 Americans beat the 15,000 British, and in his mind, he's like, There's some, there must be some higher power at work here. Goes back home. One thing leads to another, and he starts to study his Bible. He actually has a fascinating conversion experience. It was his, I believe it was his mother or mother-in-law, one of the two, who arranged for him to do the readings in the church. He didn't really like to go to church. He would send his kids to church, but he wouldn't go. He was one of those parents, and you go, you go. But he didn't really like to go himself. And then his mother and mother-in-law, I forget exactly off the top of my head, arranged for him to be the one who read the sermon one week because the preacher was away. And the sermon that he had to read that day was actually about the importance of parental responsibility, the importance of parental example, the importance of parents, et cetera, et cetera. And he's there thinking, I tell my kids to come to church and I don't even want to go myself. And the message he was reading spoke to his heart the way that God would arrange these purposes. And it kind of is a key aspect in his conversion. He starts studying his Bible there in William Miller's uh, house. And there in this house, in his bedroom, it wasn't actually at this desk, but this looks like his desk, he studies his Bible. And if you visit there today, they've got the two books laid out. On the left side, they've got the Bible. And on the right side, they have Cruden's Concordance. Because he started in Genesis 1.1. He works his way through the Bible methodically, studying his Bible. And when he comes to a verse he doesn't understand, he tries to grasp the meaning. And when he come, came to Daniel chapter 8, he, he had verses there that he didn't know what they meant, especially Daniel 8 verse 14. And instead of reading over it like many of us will do with verses we don't understand, he stayed there and he stopped there and he tried to wrestle with that text and figure out what it meant. And he came to the day year principle of a day is a year and 2,300 years. And what does a sanctuary mean? In his mind, the sanctuary was the earth, and it meant that at the end of 2,300 years, God would come and cleanse the earth with fire. Second coming. He studied this in 1816. He made sure of his conclusions by 1818. Two years to go back over it. By 1818, he's like, settled. This is what I believe. In 25 years, Jesus will come. What would you do if you found out Jesus was coming based on your Bible study in 25 years? It's exciting news, right? Powerful news. And from 1818 until 1831, he does nothing. He doesn't do anything. He told his immediate family, 
and he wrote about five or six articles in a local newspaper. Aside from that, he did nothing. For 13 years, after discovering the truth that Jesus would come in 25 years, he just lets one year go and another year go and another year go until you get to 1831, and he still hasn't publicly preached this message anywhere. In 1831, he felt this call to preach. Well, he had been feeling a call for a while. But the call gets stronger, and it gets stronger, and it gets stronger. And in 1831, he finally puts out a fleece to God. Have any of you ever put out a fleece to God, and the fleece is so ridiculous, you know it won't get fulfilled? God's calling you to do something. You're like, okay, God, if I go out my house and see someone who's dressed in, in orange from head to toe, and who's driving a red Corvette, and they stop their car, and they... You know, you just like make up some silly scenario. If that happens, God, then I'll do it. Well, you know it's not going to happen, so why'd you lay that fleece out to God? Now, in a similar way, William Miller laid out a fleece to God. It wasn't as ridiculous as what I was saying, but in some ways it was. He says, God, if I get an invitation to preach, I will preach. And you say, well, that's a fairly rational thing to ask. Well, it's not really. It's kind of a ridiculous... Um, fleece based on the last 13 years. Why? Because for 13 years, he's a farmer in New York State and has had no invitations to preach. None. In 13 years, zero invitations to preach. So he says, okay, God, if I get an invitation to preach, I'll go. Finally, he kneels down and prays that prayer. I don't know how long it was, it was five or ten minutes later, he gets a knock at his door, and his nephew, Irving Guilford, is at the door. It's a Saturday, August, 1831, and his nephew says, Uncle, so good to see you. We don't have a preacher for tomorrow, and we were wondering if you could come and preach. Now, he was a very logical man, William Miller. Very logical. His nephew lived 16 miles away. He came by horseback, which takes you 45 minutes to an hour on a horse. So his nephew left his house 45 minutes ago. I said my prayer 10 minutes ago. There's no way that the devil could have heard my prayer and told him to come get me. You understand? I prayed 10 minutes ago, he left his house 45 minutes ago, and being the very rational and reasonable man that he was, he knew there was no way he could explain this away. This has to be, without a shadow of a doubt, the calling of God. Because I said the prayer while he's on his way. I didn't know he was coming, he didn't know I was about to pray that. This must be the calling of God. And in 1831, God miraculously engineers this call for him to preach to shake him out of his lethargy and his reluctance and his hesitancy. And praise God, he went out the house. He, he stormed out the house. The, 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 the account. So his, his nephew says, can you preach, uncle? He storms out the building. Can you imagine your nephew's like, whoa. What just happened there? He storms out the building and he goes to that, that maple grove of trees outside the house. And for about, I don't know how long it was, but for a, a, good, a good while, he's walking up and down, pacing up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. And, he, and his daughter came out and looked at him and she went back in the house and she's like, Mommy, Mommy, something's wrong with Daddy. 
Well, something is wrong with daddy. He's under conviction from the spirit of God. He's trying to get a way out of it. You ever been in a situation like that where God calls you to do something and you're trying to think of every single reason why that call did not come from God? Mm, but what about this God? Mm, haven't thought about that one, have you? What about this one? What about this one? What about this one? What about this one? And you're trying to maneuver a way out of the calling of God. But he can't because he knows his nephew left home 45 minutes or so before he said to pray that there's no way he can get out of this fleece he laid down to God. And the sign says William Miller went in a farmer and he comes out a preacher. In 1831, he starts to preach. Over the next 13, 14, 15 years, his public ministry stopped about three years after the great disappointment when he lost his eyesight. Uh, For the next 15 or so years of his life, he preaches all over the northeastern parts of the United States. Leads to the conversion of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people through this humble preacher. Because honest hearts produce honest actions. God's not looking for the most qualified or the most this or the most that. He's looking for honest people who when God calls them, they respond to the call. A little chapel on his house, his property, testifies to his faith that he believed even though Jesus didn't come in 1844, he still did not allow that to shake his belief. He wasn't around for the birth of the Seventh-day Adventist church. He wasn't around for that. He wasn't even at the forefront of the doctrinal developments that came after 1844 with the sanctuary. He wasn't really involved with that. He wasn't really involved at all when the Sabbath came about in 1848. He was kind of, in a sense, off the scene, so to speak. He'd done his work, amen? And even though he didn't accept all of those new truths as they were coming up in 1847 and 48. He died in 1849, Ellen White says, an angel watches the dust of this precious servant and will call him forth at the last day. And he'll get to see Jesus come. Reluctantly bold. You know, around 1844, God called two people to preach. One was called a few years before, William Foy. He was given three visions. He shared his visions, and from what we know, he didn't get any more visions. He shared the ones he had, he didn't get any more. But around 1844, after the Great Disappointment, two people got visions. One of them was Ellen White, and one of them was Hazen Foss. About two weeks after Ellen White had her first vision, Hazen Foss has the exact same vision. It is possible, I believe, that God intended to call two people to the prophetic gift, not just one. It wasn't either or, I believe it was both and. Hazen Foss gets called, he gets given a vision, and he's very upset about the great disappointment. He's embarrassed, and he refuses to share it. What if I share it and people make fun of me again? So he doesn't share the vision he's given. He then hears an impression from God, I'll give you the vision again. Share it. And don't hesitate the second time. There's one thing to be reluctant. There's another thing to doubt the power of God. He gets the second vision. And again... He refuses to share it. He hears a voice that says, you have grieved away the Spirit of God. He panics. He calls some Advent believers and gathers them around in his house. And he tries to relay to them the vision he's seen and his mind is blank. He can't remember a thing. And those present said it was the most awful and horrible sight to watch a man whose conscience is wrecked. He met Ellen White soon afterward and pleaded with her not to say no to the prophetic calling. 
He never showed any spiritual interest over the next 50 so years of his life after that. God calls Ellen White at the age of 17. Gives her a vision. She's not sure if she wants to share it. She was in the home, I believe it was a Mrs. Haynes, as she gets this vision. She's 17 years old. Is anyone going to listen to me? Is anyone listening to me? I'm a small, small, literally small. I'm young, literally young. I'm uneducated, literally uneducated. Is anyone going to listen to me? And she's wrestling with this call from God. Wrestling with this call. She goes to another house. She actually goes from her house to another house. She's just trying to really wrestle with this call. She goes to another home, and someone was there, Brother Joseph Turner, and he encourages her and tells her that he wants to hear what she has to say, which gives her some encouragement. And later on, she shares the vision to those around her, and she's encouraged by their favorable response and, and, and willingness to hear what she has to say. And she continues in her prophetic journey. Reluctant, but bold. When you read the writings of Ellen White, she was a bold writer, amen? She was bold enough to say, dear brother X, the Lord has shown me that you and your wife. Some bold things she says. She wasn't afraid to go up to men of standing in the church and call them out. She was bold, but in her initial call, she was reluctant. Not a doubt in God's call per se, but a doubt in herself. God's not looking for the people that say, I'm the best. Use me. He is looking for people that will say, here am I, send me. But it's the people that say, here am I, send me, who acknowledge their deficiency, who acknowledge their weakness and say, I'm reluctant to, to, to be used because I know how bad I am. But if you want to use me, God, take me. God's looking for those people today. Your local church is looking for those people today. It may be that your church is asking you to do something or there's a burden God has placed on your heart to do a particular ministry or calling and don't wait 13 years like William Miller. Praise God he responded to the call and, and that's fine. I know, you know, history, whatever. But imagine if he accepted that call to preach five or 10 years previous. It's possible more would have heard, I don't know. It's a hypothetical question of history. Don't wait that 13 years and have to put out some crazy fleece and get angry with God. When God calls you, respond. God uses events like this. He uses places like camp meeting to place in the spiritual pressure cooker that you have of a message and a seminar and a message and a seminar and around all these advertisements. God uses these spiritual pressure cooker environments to impress upon you things that you might not get at other times. And if God is impressing you, sorry, impressing you and impressing upon you a particular calling, reluctantly move forward with boldness. Reluctant based on your own deficiencies, but bold in the power of God. The last day message will be given by a people that know exactly how weak they are, but know exactly how powerful God is. How many of you want to be bold to share the message? Father in heaven, give us a boldness, Lord, that we don't naturally have in the sense of a boldness that comes from a good source. Give us a boldness based on your power, on your calling. Take away our trust in ourselves. Take away our own inflated view of our role in your work. Remove that spirit of Moses that many of us have, some of us openly, or some of us just kind of keep it hidden that surely our brothers need our help. Lord, take that away from us, for it's so detrimental both to us and to your work and your cause. 
May we have that humility of Christ. Lord, you see our hands raised. Give us that boldness, Lord, that comes from you. And a passion to share this message with the world around us in its dying hour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.